So I'm going to read Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sophia. Let's give Sophia a hand in the scripture today. Can anyone guess what we're going to talk about today? No one, no one at least guessed Jesus? Like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you cannot fail with that one, all right? Well, we are going to talk about Jesus, but we're also going to talk about sin. Yes, the Bible too. But we're going to talk about sin. <clears throat> sin. We're going to talk about sin. Um, You may ask me right off the bat, Kenny, what is this church's opinion of sin? Well, we're against it. Um, Let's pray. All right. You're dismissed, right? That's That's the sermon for today. Yes, we're we're against sin, but why are Christians against sin? Um Are we just against sin? Is it just a matter of being right or doing right and not being wrong and not doing wrong and not feeling wrong? Or is it more than that? I think when the culture uh, looks at us, looks at the church, a lot of times there's all kinds of ideas about sin that float around. But one, one of the ones that I think of is an old Saturday Night Live sketch with Dana Carvey where he was the church lady. I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, but he's all dressed up and he looks kind of like a little old church lady and he, 
and well, she, the character, is talking about so-and-so and such-and-such and everything that happened in politics this week, and then she's just blaming, oh, they're just sinners. <laughs> sinners far from Jesus. And, and, and he always talks about Satan, right? <laughs> but I feel like there's this perception of the world when they look at Christians, hey, they're always just talking about sin, who's in, who's out, and what they did wrong, and and there's some hypocrisy there because they're all talking about sin and we know they all sin, right? Uh-huh, anyone? <laughs> right, so sometimes um, the view of the church talking about sin is a little bit like that. But what is sin, right? Because if you look in the dictionary, you'll get a little bit of an aspect of sin. When I looked in the dictionary, which I like to do occasionally, um, the definition I got was an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. So in that, I think that encapsulates part of sin. It's something that you do. It's an act that's against what God says is good and right. And that's part of it. But I think that misses the kind of scope of what the Bible talks about when it talks about the concept of sin and the grip of sin in our lives. One way I would um, summarize it or define it is that sin is a default disposition of distrust toward God. It's a default heart attitude that we have as humans that does not trust what God said is good for us. Another way of saying it is sin is rebellion against God and his ways, right? That God is good and God is holy and sin is what we do when we rebel against God and his ways. But the problem with defining it that way is in our culture, rebellion is kind of a a buzzword with a positive connotation, right? We're supposed to rebel against the man. We're supposed to rebel against the injustices that those in authority are pressing upon us. We're supposed to rebel against the tyrants who are trying to take advantage of us. Anybody? Right? But here's the problem with, with thinking that way when we talk about rebellion against God. God is not a tyrant. He's your heavenly father. Your perfectly good heavenly father who loves you. And God is not trying to take advantage of you or take something from you. Every good gift in your life comes from God. So when we talk about sin as rebellion against God, that's a terrible place to find yourself in rebellion against a good, loving God. So sin is our actions. It's our acts. It's what we do. Think the Ten Commandments, right? So don't lie, don't... uh, cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, but it's also an overall attitude against God. Sin is something that's at work in our mind, in our heart, in our body. Man, it got real quiet already. (laughs) Sin is something that we're all familiar with, but God's solution to sin also speaks to our mind and our heart and our body. At the root of of every sin is temptation, and at the root of every temptation is the same lie that God is holding out something good from you. Do you guys catch that? You know, we always talk about in the Christian worldview, and you look at Genesis and Adam and Eve in the Bible, it's not just a story about creation, but it's a story about the condition of the human heart. And that when God says, if you eat of this tree, you'll surely die, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the serpent says, oh, you won't die. God knows you'll be like him. And you'll know good and evil for yourself. You'll be like God. Well, the irony was they were already like God. 
And God had already given them everything good. But what is temptation? It's the temptation to believe God is holding back from me what's really good. Right? So if that's the root of every temptation, the root of every sin is believing that lie about God. In all sorts of different things in our lives. So why, if that's what sin is, why do we need to talk about sin? Because I don't know about you, um, you know, but it's feeling a little stuffy in here right now. <laughs> Just teasing y'all. It's all right. It's all right. You can laugh. It's okay. Yeah, there you go. Oh, I forgot. I need to tell a joke first before you laugh. All right. No, but here, here's why we need to talk about sin. Because sin is deadly. Sin is deadly. Sin is serious. Sin is the world's greatest problem. The world, how many know the world has a lot of problems? Sin, according to the Christian worldview, and I realize maybe not all of you here today ascribe to that worldview, but let me at least describe to you that sin is the world's greatest problem. All that is wrong from the world, the Bible says, stems from and roots back to the effects of and the results of human sin. That the, that the corruption we see in governments that the starvation, I'm telling you thousands of people will starve to death today when we have plenty of food on the planet to feed everybody. And what is that a result of? That's a result of systems that are broken by sin. I'm talking macro level, right? You guys with me? Yep. Right? But if you look at, even if you look at the bombings and the wars and the killings, in my hometown of Mena, Arkansas, population 5,500 people this week, and that's the biggest town in the county, They've been rocked this week by a murder that happened in that county. And a 32-year-old single mother was found dead. And then they found her two-year-old daughter in the woods dead. And they found her uncle in his own home dead. And then they searched for her son and they found him, nine-year-old son, one day later, dead. Sin. That's sin. And when you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you're seeing everything going crazy, the Bible would tell you that's the effects of sin in this world. And yet God came to do something about it. Which is what I want to talk about today. (laughs) So hang on with me for a few minutes because we're going to get there. Not just going to say don't sin. All right, see you next week. Sin is the world's greatest problem, but sin is also your greatest problem and my greatest problem. Do you know what I'm saying? The Bible says that our bodies die because of sin, that the wages of sin is death and all of sin and falling short of the glory of God. So we all experience death because of sin. But more than that, and in addition to that, our souls experience death because of sin. The effects of sin is what rips apart our marriages and tears apart families. And the effects of sin is what leaves people strung out on drugs and people lonely and isolated and overwhelmed with their own failures. Make no mistake, sin is deadly. Whether it's something as bad as murder or whether it's something as bad as gossip. Sin destroys. Sin breaks us apart. We all there? Do we all hate sin yet? If sin wasn't your greatest problem, then Jesus would have come to give you 
maybe another, a, a good self-help book. Or Jesus would have come to teach us all how to build a better business. Or Jesus would have come to teach us all that you need to really value an education because this is what's going to save you. But Jesus came, he said, to save sinners. To seek and save that which is lost. Like me. And like many of you. He came to save us. So sin is our greatest problem. But what do we do with it? How do we respond to it? If you're with me and if you see that, that sin is a problem, well, then what are our responses to it? You look at the culture today, and I think the, the way our culture has tended to for the past few decades is, is basically to deny sin, that it even exists. And what I mean by this is we, we live in a relativistic culture with moral relativism where everyone says that there's no absolute truth. So you can have your truth and I can have my truth, but who are you to tell me what's right and wrong for everybody? And who am I to tell you what's right and wrong for everybody? You can't tell me what's right and wrong unless I'm hurting somebody and then you can tell me what's wrong. Anyone? But that leaves us in a society that is just reeling from the effects of sin. Feeling the symptoms every day, every week. And yet, we're feeling those symptoms and we're unable or unwilling to diagnose the actual disease in the human heart. Sin can be, look, sin can be an ethereal concept and you can say, oh, there's no objective right and wrong until I steal your wallet. (laughs) And then, pretty quick, you're going to believe in absolute right and wrong. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You're not going to be able to prove it, theoretically. <laughs> but you're going to feel it because there's a sense of justice within you because you're made in the image of God. So if we as a society are refusing to label sin what sin is and ignoring it and denying that it exists, that does nothing to help the actual problem. That does about as much, ignoring it does about as much to help the problem as like ignoring a big pink elephant in the room. <laughs> Amen? Ravi Zacharias is a a Christian author and apologist who kind of gives a defense of the Christian faith. He's a great Christian thinker and he travels around to um, college campuses and gives these talks and he does a Q&A session always. And I was watching a video of just a little snippet and a student came up and asked, hey, why are Christians so obsessed with this moral code? Like, why do you have to, why does it have to be the Christian version of what's right and wrong? And why do we have to do that? Why is it the Ten Commandments? Why can't you just, I mean, humanity's inherently good. Uh, society wouldn't get along if humanity wasn't inherently good. Why are the Christians so obsessed over this sin thing and right and wrong? And Ravi gave a brilliant answer, which he tends to do, but he began, and I can't give you the whole answer because um, I'm not that brilliant and I didn't write it down. But... <laughs> He began the answer with this. He was saying, why, why do Christians have to control this and right and wrong? And he began his answer with a question. He said, do you lock your doors at night? It's like, you can say all you want that you trust in the inherent goodness of humanity, but do you lock your doors at night? You better believe you do. <laughs> right? Why? Because you know that bad activities, wrong activities exist and that they could happen to you and that people do them. All right, let me uh, get off that soapbox. Um, 
So that's one of, the, one of the views of the culture of sin. But what about Christians? What about Christians? Because we have experienced God's grace. Anyone experience God's grace? Oh, yeah. Amen. I love that the worship team was singing about God's grace and singing about how deep the Father's love for us. And we love to sing because God has saved us from what? Sin. Okay, we got it. All right, good. All right, y'all are, y'all are with me. God has saved us from sin. But how many know that Christians still sin? (laughs) I hope that wasn't directed at anyone, right? Newsflash, we're not perfect. Hey, I'm not perfect. Christians still sin. I became a Christian at the age of six. And I, I came to faith in Jesus and I believed in him, and I repented of my horribly sinful life, right? At the age of six years, I don't know how bad it was, but I'm pretty sure it was bad, you know? I know I kicked people where I shouldn't have kicked them. I don't know. But I turned from my sin, and I turned to God, and, and I was baptized, and it's been 25 years since then. I want to ask you, do you think I sinned more before I got saved or after I got saved? after (laughs) right most of my sin has been as a believer that may not be true for everyone but it's true for some well what do we do with that what do we do with the fact that Christians are saved from sin but we still sin what's our response and that's why I love the passage that we read today that we're hanging out in all day because it highlights not only what to do with sin, but also highlights a little bit of what not to do with sin. First of all, it highlights not to hold on to sin. Everyone say, holding on. Holding on. One of the Christian responses that we would find, actually, let me reread a little bit of that verse. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans. And he's been talking about, you know, the law of God came, which is the the Old Testament and tells us what's right and wrong. And he says, when the law came, sin increased. Why was that? Because we now, you know, we were already sinning, but now we knew what was sinful and there was more and more of it happening. But he said, grace, when sin increased, grace increased all the more, right? So then when we start this chapter, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Can, can, is that how it works? <laughs> if, if, if I sin more and God is proved more gracious, then should I just keep on sinning? Because we're going to see more of God's grace. Right? And as funny as it sounds, that's been an argument. Some have made that argument within the Christian faith from that time until now. But he goes on to say, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And the response I want to talk about that some Christians hold is holding on to sin. Even though you've been saved by God's grace, there's still something in your life. And I don't know what area of sin it is. If you want a list, there's a bunch of them in here. Right? It's a bunch of lists of sin. And I'm not going to go off and just 
nitpick every sin right now. But I'm saying there are Christians who have been saved by God's grace. And yet when it comes to an area of sin in their life, they're holding on to it. They're either justifying it or excusing it or trying to redefine sin. When you're justifying it or excusing it, here's, here's what it goes like. It's this attitude that, hey, God's grace is awesome. Anyone love God's grace? I love God's grace. It's so awesome. As much as I sin, he keeps on forgiving me, right? And, and then what we fall into the trap of God's grace is so great. This little sin in my life, that doesn't matter much. I don't have to get rid of that because God's grace is so great. So this sin doesn't matter. I'll just hide it over here. I'll justify it. I'll make an excuse for it. If that's you, if you know there's a sin in your life, but you're holding on to it, if there's something in you that's excusing it and saying, no, this sin is okay, then why did Jesus have to die for your sin? And what did he die to save you from if it's not your sin? The gospel is not guilt management. It's not God's way of saying, here, don't feel guilty anymore, but stay the same. The gospel is God's grace to forgive you of your sin and it's God's power to change you and to release you from your sin because he's got something better for you. And if you don't believe that, you're buying into the lie that God's holding out what's best for me. In this little area, I know what's better than God knows. He's your maker. He made you. He knows what's best for you and he wants to bless you. And if he wants to take that sin out of your life, it's to give you something better. Mm. Amen. I didn't mean to thump the Bible. <laughs> he loves you too much to leave you in your sin. He wants to pull you out of it. There's a scripture, 1 Corinthians 6. We have it up here. And this one's talking about sexual sin. But it says this, flee from sexual immorality. So run away. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And then listen to these two verses. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Does anyone know what that price was? The precious blood of Jesus Christ that he was not unwilling to spill for you, that you could be saved. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So we justify it. We excuse it. We hold on to it. Sometimes we redefine it. And what does that mean? That means we look at those lists of sin that are in the Bible. We look at what God tells us is good for us and what is bad for us. And if it if it kind of counteracts what we believe or what we feel, more often what we feel, if we have a strong reaction to it, we try to find a way around it. It's like you're reading, you're reading. Okay, let's sidestep that one. Okay, three verses later. Okay, we're good, all right, yeah, yeah. We try to redefine what sin is. But I want to ask you, if we can't trust the Bible to tell us what sin is, how can we trust it to tell us what salvation is? If the Bible can't tell you what is enslaving you, how can it tell you what will set you free? How can you trust it? 1 John chapter 1, 5-10 through 10 says this, 
This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. I don't think we like the idea of being self-deceived. But I love that the Bible calls us out on it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Let me ask you this. Are you holding on to sin today? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) If you are, could could I charge you to let go of it? To put the poison down, the thing that is killing you, the thing that will enslave you. If you don't feel it yet, if you're just in the mode of feeling the pleasure of it, hey, sin, there is a momentary pleasure to sin. The Bible itself says that. And we wouldn't engage in sins, whether it's lying or gossip or sexual sins or whatever, if if there wasn't something enjoyable about it. But it's momentary and fleeting. And in the end, we feel destruction more than we feel joy. I had a friend... Um, uh, a few years ago at, at my, my job and, and he was just like built. Uh, I was jealous. And um, he, uh, he would show up to work sometimes and it, it, I could tell he was kind of like hung over and just kind of like moving slow, right? And I would ask him, hey, how, you know, how was your night? And this happened more than once. He said, oh yeah, man, it was great. I worked out, ran six miles, then I went out and had like six beers and like four shots. And so I'm just kind of feeling it. You know, I woke up this morning at five and worked out again. <laughs> and all of you are like, whoa, who is this guy? Here's the thing. I don't think anyone in this room, and I don't think if he was honest with himself, would say he was living a healthy lifestyle. Even if his body was kind of looking like it for a while. You can't keep that up. You can't keep that up. You can't be living healthy over here and drinking poison over here and not feel the effects of it. Put the poison down. Another response that we have to sin is, uh, I think happens a lot, is sin holding on to you. So there's holding on to sin, but then there's sin holding on to you. What do I mean by that? Many Christians are walking in God's grace and have experienced God's grace, but they find that they're still sinning. And they find that there's some area of their life that the light of God's goodness and grace and power does not yet seem to have shown into. Is that tracking? And you may be here today and have that. There may be a secret sin, a, a habit of sin, an addiction, an area of sin in your life that actually that you mourn over and grieve over and you wonder, will I ever have victory in this area of my life? And can I humbly remind you today that there is hope for you in that situation? 
That your spiritual enemy that loves to isolate and put those lies in our minds does not have the last word on your life. Anybody? Anybody with me? Sin will not have the last word in your life. Jesus will. Death, hell, and the grave could not hold him back. It could not beat him, so it will not beat you. Verse 14 of our passage today says this, Sin shall no longer be your master, for you're not under the law, but under grace. Jesus was not too weak to die to forgive you of your sin, but he was also not too weak to rise again to give you a new life. Amen? So what do we do if we're holding on to sin? If we find that we have that attitude towards sin as a Christian? Or what do we do if we feel like sin is holding on to us and we can't break its grip? I'm glad you asked. Thank you so much for asking. Because I have other pages and I don't know what I was going to do with them. Um, How do we grow? As Christians, how do we grow? How do we defeat sin? Is it just through, you know, we get saved by God's grace and then we just try super duper, super duper hard not to sin? Right? We just grab the steering wheel of life, white knuckles, no sin. Right? Anyone ever tried that? How'd that go, right? That wheel just seems to... Go off the path, right? I think many of us live with that mentality. That reality of like, God saved me and gave me a clean slate. Now it's up to me to keep it clean. Right? The slate doesn't stay clean for long. (laughs) What is our solution then? This passage highlights it. This concept that Christians don't grow through trying harder. We grow through the gospel. We grow through identifying with Jesus. This passage talks about count yourselves dead to sin. In verse 11. Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And, and what it's doing there. You know, we talk about here all the time that we grow through the gospel, that the gospel is not just how you get into the faith and then you grow through your own effort and your own disciplines. But that the gospel is how you grow further into the faith. It's not the ABCs and then you move past that. It's the A to Z of our Christian walk. So what do I mean by that? What this passage highlights is that it's through identifying not what you need to do next, but what Jesus has done for you. Emphasis on has done already for you, past tense. And when Paul is writing this and he's talking to them about what should your attitude be towards sin, should we do it more or should we do it less? We're against it, right? But how do we do that? We do that not through trying harder. We do that through believing more in what Jesus has done. And refreshing our mind and identifying ourselves with the salvation that he's already purchased on the cross. I want you to uh, 
notice something as I read the first uh, few verses of that passage again. I want you to notice that the key verbs that have to do with what is happening are all past tense. And that means something. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that sin may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also should live, may live a new life. We grow not through trying harder, but through believing more what Jesus has done for you. The Christian approach is not look at what you need to do now. It's look at what Jesus has done for you. And let that change your mind and your heart and your body. Jesus died for my sin. And and Paul says here, I have died to my sin. I have died to that disposition of distrust toward, toward God. Does that make sense? And then he says, Jesus was buried in the grave. And I, when I was baptized, have been buried in a watery grave to signify that I am dead to the old me. Jesus was crucified. And then he says in verse 6, don't you know that your old self was crucified with Christ? The more you can be rooted in what Jesus has done for you, your heart will melt in worship and you will begin to be changed from the inside out. That my sin is so deadly to me, but it was even more deadly to him. That he never sinned, but he went to the cross for my death and let his blood be spilled out for my sins so that I could be free from what kills me and I could be alive to God. So that as Ephesians 2 says, you who were once dead in your sins are now made alive in Christ. That I who was once far from God am now brought into the presence of the Most High God. Amen? What Paul says is, you are dead. (laughs) Everyone say, you are dead. Never felt so good to say that. I don't think I've ever said that. But <laughs> why would I ever say that to someone? <laughs> if they're dead, they already know it. No, but you are dead and you are alive. You are dead and you are alive. You are dead to what kills you and you are alive to who gives you life. You're dead to what was dragging you down and you're alive to who sets you free. And what he says is, in verse 11, he says this. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Count yourselves. Other translation says, consider yourselves. This is a thinking exercise. Count yourselves. Consider yourselves. The old King James says, reckon Reckon yourselves. That also sounds like Arkansas. (laughs) I I used that word growing up, right? Reckon yourselves. Consider yourselves. Count yourselves. What he's saying is, 
How do we live this out? This is what I'm trying to get to. We live this out through a change of mind, a choice in our heart, and an offering of our bodies. A change of our mind, a choice in our heart, and an offering of our bodies. And this, this changing your mind, that's the first thing. It's counting yourselves dead to sin. And it's something that happens in your mind. If sin that's in your life is believing a lie about God, then this counting yourselves is replacing that truth with, uh, replacing that lie with the truth of what, how much God loves you and what he has done for you and what he says about you. I'm dead to the old way. Sin is not my master. I'm dead to what kills me. And what this passage tells us to do is when we think of ourselves in relation to sin, we primarily need to think of ourselves as dead to it. Y'all still with me? You ever heard anyone say, you're dead to me? They have to say a New York accent, right? (laughs) You're dead to me. You can say that to sin. You can say that to the sin in your life that you're struggling with. You're dead to me. I don't owe you anything. You have died to sin. The Bible says that if you are in Christ, you have died just like Jesus died. And your old self is crucified with him. And then it says in verse 7, a dead person is free from their obligations. If I die today, if I preach this sermon and it goes so bad that I die, right? Just kidding. But if I die today and I, no one's going to be mad if I don't show up to work tomorrow. Or classes. I've got some classes tomorrow night. They're not going to be like, I can't believe Kenny didn't show up. (laughs) Dying's not an excuse. (laughs) Right? If I die today and I don't pay rent for May, I don't care. (laughs) No one's coming after me. Am I worried about my credit score? Like, I died. I died. I'm dead. I don't owe the obligations of that life anything anymore. And what, what... The Bible is saying is, count yourself dead to the old way of sin. That the way you think of sin in your life needs to be like, I am dead to that. I don't owe anything to that. And as a Christian, you already know, all that life ever got me was sin and heartbreak and separation from God and hell in my family and looking for answers in the bottom of a bottle. All that got me was hell. And yet Jesus says, count yourself dead to it. (laughs) Because you are. When you came to faith in Jesus, you're dead to it. You don't owe it anything. What enslaves you does not have control over you. Sin will not be your master. Jesus has redeemed you and he will one day present you perfect before God. And it won't be you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It'll be you clinging to the grace of God. And it'll be you counting yourself dead to the old way and alive to God. Anyone remember what it it was like when you came to Jesus? One hand. (laughs) Anyone, Anyone remember what life was like when you came to Jesus? Do you remember what it felt like to finally come alive in the presence of God? To have the light turned on up here and to have the love of God just 
wrap his arms around you and you to feel that this is eternal. This is what I've been looking for. This is God. We're made alive to God. You go from being far from God and when God is brought up in conversation, it's either a joke or you're secretly afraid. To all of a sudden knowing that the God of the universe is on your side and that he loves you and that he sent his son to die for you and that nothing you have ever done or will ever do will keep him from loving you. Nothing that you can do can diminish the power of his grace. And that the God who made the universe that we still haven't explored the, the depths of hears you when you pray in your car or by your bedside. Grace makes you come alive. And the Holy Spirit gives you the power from within. When you agree with God in your mind that what Jesus did is true for you. That just like he died, you died. I died. And just like he rose again to never die, I have risen again and am beginning eternal life now. Amen? So it starts with a change in your mind and then it moves to a choice in your heart. And I'm moving quickly today. Verse 11 said, you know, count yourselves, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. And verse 12 says this, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not let sin be the one in control of what you do. Don't let it reign. Don't let it be king or queen of your life. What is that? That's a choice in your heart. That's a choice to say, sin will not reign in me. I'm not perfect, but I'm choosing. You know, we talk about all the time around here that the, the difference between knowing something and believing it is the distance between your head and your heart. That we can know something is true, but we don't really believe it till it hits our heart. And that's what I'm saying. That God has given us this new reality that I struggle to find words to even describe, but I pray that the Holy Spirit is awakening it in your heart right now what it means to be dead to sin and have a new life with God. But then secondly, what we have to do is not just know that and think that and agree with God, but then we have to make a choice in the place where we make choices. You're never going to grow. You're never going to defeat sin. You're never going to get past holding on to sin if you don't decide to. God's too nice. He's not going to just rip it from you. You've got to make a decision. You've got to agree with God as he works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Anyone with me? Sometimes we just think, hey, God's, gonna, God's got it. Peace. <laughs> hey, God, work on this. I'm going to go. No, we got to work with God. Sorry if I'm stepping on some theological toes here. I don't know. <clears throat> Y'all with me? Is this making sense? So we change our mind, we choose in our heart, and then we offer our bodies to God. The last verse that I want to look at, verse 13, says, Do not offer 
any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself. So he goes from don't offer any part of yourself to sin, but now offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Through Jesus, because we are identified with him and what he accomplished for us on the cross and that he rose again, through Jesus, God gives us the incredible opportunity as Christians, as part of the family of God, to no longer be part of the biggest problem of the world, but to be part of the solution. Do you guys see that? Don't offer your whole body as an instrument to do wicked, to do wrong, to do the things that bring pain and despair and hell on earth. Don't offer any of yourself to that because one, you don't have to. You're dead to that. You're dead to me, right? You're dead to that. So you don't have to offer yourself to that. You can offer yourself to God. Not because of anything you've done, but because of everything he's done for you. And now he wants to take you out of the sin that will ruin your life. And he wants to make you an instrument of his righteousness and peace to bless everyone you come in contact with. (laughs) What? I have a role to play? That, hey, this world is so broken and I can mourn over it, but God actually lets me help? Again, not because of me, and Christians aren't perfect. God knows that, and the world knows that. We're not perfect. But when we believe this truth, all of a sudden, we go from being so focused on what we don't want to let go of that we can give. And we can go from being so focused on ourselves to, like Jesus, sacrificing and giving to bless others. Do you guys see that? We can go from strung out on drugs to clean to helping people get off drugs. We can go from, I used to steal stuff just for fun, and now I work so that I can give to other people who need things. Ephesians 4.26. Do you guys see that? God's actually got a really good plan. I don't know if you knew that. I forgot it, but he wants to use you for good in the world. Amen? Amen. And the only thing that can do that is not you. Do good and don't sin. Do good and don't sin. Do good and don't sin. No, it's it's when we count ourselves, I'm dead to that. And God has made me so alive. And you know what? That sin seems like it has power over me, but God's promises are true. He has never once not kept a promise. And he will not fail to keep his promise in your life. If you keep coming to him and you keep confessing so that you would be forgiven and confessing so that you would be healed and you count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ, someone needs to feel that hope today. Amen? If you've been holding on to sin, and I'm closing, if you've been holding on to sin, or if you feel like sin has been holding on to you, there's hope today for you. 
There's hope today for you in the gospel. And it's not in all your strength and all your efforts. And it's not going to be your ability to be perfect. But it's in Jesus. That though he was strong for you, he became weak for you. Though he was rich, he became poor and emptied himself to be a sacrifice for your sins. And though he died, he rose again. So that you could die to the old way and you could come alive in God. Even today. So you could be dead to sin, you could be alive in God, and that you could change your mind, and you could make a choice in your heart, and then you can offer your body to God to be an instrument of righteousness that he would bless the world with. Let's pray. And the band's going to come up while I'm praying. Father, we thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for this space together. I thank you for everyone that's here today, many people I know and uh, several that I don't know and have never met. Um, But Lord, one thing that I know is true is that your word is faithful, God, and that your word is living and that uh, you use imperfect, uh, flawed preachers to point us, myself included, to your truth. And God, I know I know that I'm not perfect, Lord, but I know that your word is true. And I know, Holy Spirit, that you are here, even in our midst, God, that you are moving on hearts and lives right now. And I pray that you would continue your work as we make room for you to work, as we make room to respond to your word. God, I pray for this church, for this assembly. I pray that we would be transformed into people of joy at this message of freedom from what ails us and what kills us and what enslaves us. And yet you've called us to be free, to be alive in your life, to identify with you. God, I just pray that someone who needed to hear this message today, if you're here and God was awakening your heart, do not delay in responding to him today. Begin to talk to him right now. If it's a sin you're holding on to and God is just highlighting that in the front of your mind, can't think of anything else right now. I want to tell you, that's what you need to bring to God. And if you're here and there's a sin that you just feel beat up by the, you just feel beat up by our spiritual enemy and you feel beat up by self-inflicted wounds because you keep going back to the same sin. I want to tell you right now to at least lift your head up and look that there is hope and that God is faithful to forgive us and to purify us from all sins. First John says. So Lord, I just pray that you would move, that you would work. God, I know that your word will not return void. I pray that you would bring a spirit of joy in this body, God. A spirit of repentance right now, God, that we would come to you and confess. We love you and we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen, amen. If you all would stand with me.